0: This is Smart Women's Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. A lot of women, and particularly women of color, are very nervous about putting
1: themselves out there. And it's just reminding young women that they really do have the skills.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women's Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Bonnie Jenkins is an ambassador and the founder of the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security, or WCAPS. Jenkins created the organization to encourage and actively develop leaders and a network in areas that globally affect women of color the most, peace, security, and conflict transformation. Ambassador Jenkins is a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she's also a visiting scholar at the University of Pennsylvania's School of Nursing and Veterinary Science. In 2009, President Barack Obama nominated Ambassador Jenkins as Special Envoy and Coordinator for Threat Reduction Programs in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation at the State Department. Prior to this, she worked for the Ford Foundation and served as counsel on the 9-11 Commission. Jenkins is a retired Naval Reserve Officer and received several awards for her military service. I sat down with Bonnie to discuss her work at WCAPS, her career, and the work she's done on North Korea and Iran. Ambassador Bonnie Jenkins, welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Let's start with your background first. You have both a Ph.D. and a law degree, and you served in the military. Tell us a little bit about how you started. Which of these did you do first, and how did it lay the foundation for your career path?
1: Actually, I started uh, in the military. I was always a reservist. I was never active duty military. Um, So I joined, uh, uh, I started out in the Air Force Reserves, and then I switched over to the Navy Reserves, Uh um, because they had a direct commission uh, program that I was very interested in, and it was uh, doing Navy intelligence. So I started that. But soon after that, I joined, uh, I started doing uh, my education for my law degree. Uh Um, And so I did that. um, and I also got a joint degree in uh, public administration at the time. Uh, and then a Ph.D. was after that. The Ph.D. was after I had gone and worked in government for a while. And then I had decided that it was time to go back to school because I always wanted a Ph.D.
0: Uh-huh. And so how did you meld all of this together to create the career that you created that culmin- culminated with you mm-hmm. being an ambassador?
1: Well, I think one of the uh, one of the interesting things is that um, I think all of those different aspects have led to me be being obviously the person I am, but also has led to me being able to approach issues the way I approach issues. I think that um, having those different perspectives has ha- allowed me to be a person who can look at issues strate- more strategically mm-hmm. and look at different aspects of arguments the different aspects of um, uh, why policy is made the way it is, because I can see from different perspectives, uh, which I think has been very helpful and very useful. Um, but also, um, I think there are certain cultures that are in each one of those areas that I think has been very helpful in terms of not just how I approach things, but also the different cultures that I, I work with in my area. And there's a lot of connection in all, the, all these issues. I mean, maybe not the law, but PhD and military, they're all very much intel, hard security, weapons of mass destruction type issues, that I worked on in each one.
0: It, you specifically were uh, nominated by President Obama in 2009 to be the Special Envoy and Coordinator for Threat Reduction Programs. Talk about what you did there. Well, actually, the, the, the
1: job that I had as a coordinator and special envoy was a new job that was created for me. Uh, so I joined uh, in 2009, and that was my role. And what I did for that was really um, coordinating U.S. programs and international work and working with our partners overseas internationally who were all uh, funding work in trying to prevent uh, chemical, biological, nuclear, radiological terrorism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So trying to ensure that non-state actors with intent to do harm do not have access to what they would need to develop weapons, uh, either chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons, or radiological uh, source weapons. Um, So that really was the job. And then there were a number of things that were attached to that that followed from that. But that was really the focus, which is different from earlier in my career, where I focused more on states. Mm -hmm. And so trying to ensure states did not develop weapons, uh, WMD weapons, weapons of mass destruction, I switched to non-state actors and focusing on individuals.
0: And having said all of that, I ha- I can't I can't let you uh, be here and not ask you about what worries you in terms of Iran and North Korea.
1: Well, I think with Iran, the interesting thing that worries me is not so much Iran as the fact that we. Um, withdrew from an agreement that was trying that was really the
0: jcpoa
1: exactly um and that agreement with iran and with a number of our european allies in addition to china uh, and russia was to uh, help ensure that iran does not develop a nuclear weapon and my concern is uh that we're not part of that anymore and it's one that actually is working um in terms of what it was set out to do Mm -hmm. um so that's my concern with iran and um yeah. Basically. And North Korea? Uh, North Korea, I guess the concern is that we do not waste opportunities to engage them uh, to try to promote uh, ways in which they can get rid of their nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles. I think that we have opportunities now that we have not had before, and so my concern is that we actually take advantage of the opportunities that we have.
0: Mm-hmm. You also uh, worked as counsel on the 9/11 Commission. This was before your work at the at the State Department, um, and you've also worked uh, to launch the implement launch and the uh, implementation of the Global Health Security Agenda. That's very different from mm-hmm. the work you just described on countering weapons of mass destruction. Well, the
1: interesting thing is that um, the 9/11 Commission, which of course was uh, not really weapons, well, traditional weapons of mass destruction uh, defined. It was really focusing on the actors themselves. And um, I think one of the things that happened with nine eleven was not only recognizing uh, the use of another instrument to destroy uh, the lives of a, of a lot of innocent people, Um, but also the fact that these are individuals who could have gotten their hands on WMD and wondering if they would use them if they could. Um, And so there is that connection of the individuals and the materials and pathogens and chemical precursors that I work on. And theoretically, you want to keep the two separate. (laughs) And so, you know, a lot of the work that I was doing at State Department um, under, you know, when I was an ambassador there was really focusing on, you know, the, the materials and pathogens, the recurs, chemical precursors to keep them away from the non-state actors who would, who would get their hands on something. So in a sense, 9-11 was working on the terrorist side, uh, whereas a lot of my background uh, at the State Department after that was working on the. The WMD side itself. Um, The Global Health Security Agenda, which you mentioned, uh, which was launched in 2014, is an effort, global effort, to prevent detect and respond to infectious disease threats. So it was actually launched right before Ebola. And the connection there is in looking at prevent, detect, and respond to infectious disease, there's an aspect of it that is on the intentional side. So it's really looking at infectious disease, whether it's natural, accidental, or intentional. And when you talk about intentional, that brings me in because that's the biosecurity side. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, for people who may want to develop a bioweapon, you know, that could end up, you know, that could be an infect, create infectious disease or it could be, you know, a lot of the people who are involved in dealing with these issues are some of the same people regardless of whether it's natural, accidental, or intentional. So that's how I got brought into the infectious disease is through the intentional side of my work. I see. Security.
0: So that's perhaps the string that pulls the thread through yes. all of the different aspects of your, of your career. <sighs> uh, and now you're working on another project, the Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security and Conflict Transformation. That's what you started doing when your time at the State Department was over. So talk about this group, why you started it, and what you're hoping it will accomplish. Um, I started the uh,
1: organization uh, WCAPS uh, uh, acronym uh, mainly because I was very interested for a long time in uh, the fact that there's so many policies that are developed in, in here uh, that do not reflect, I think, the breadth of. Backgrounds and culture and experiences that we have in the U.S. So, in my area of hard security, for example, there are very few people of color, uh, uh, very few women when I started out, um, and so it's been an issue that's been on my mind for a long time. And I've wanted to do something like this for a long time, but of course, I really was not in a position to do so for uh, for over eight years at least when I was working in the government as an ambassador. So, as soon as I left government, you know, and I took some time off to relax a bit, I started this organization. So it was kind of a I've had for a while Um, and so um, it's a 501c3 and um, it really is really trying to do three things Uh, the overall goal which is to help diversify the the foreign policy process and, and and but also looking at issues of peace and security, um, really looking at how to how to increase the number of young women, increase interest in young women in these fields, um, how to highlight mid-career women who are in the field, but you don't get to see very often, and also looking at institutions and what, what they're doing in terms of sustainability of any kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, and trying to promote um diversity, equity, inclusion in these institutions.
0: How did you manage to scale it up pretty quickly? Cause you went kind of from zero to a hundred miles per hour in a relatively short period of time. You've, yeah. you've been in business with this for what? Couple yeah. years?
1: Uh, about a year and it'll be two years in September. Okay. Yeah, um, a lot of passion. <laughs> a lot of passion and a lot of hard work. I really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm very passionate about it. I'm a person that likes juggle a lot of things, obviously. And this is something where I'm putting all of my time and energy into one thing right now. Um, And so, you know, it's just a lot of hard work and passion and people around me who are also interested in this issue. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's gotten a lot of interest right now, particularly since there's a lot of talk right now about women and national security issues and the lack of diversity. So I think that has helped. And I think my organization has, ha- has helped to expand the discussion. Um, so, you know, I, it's been a lot, just a lot of hard work and, and having uh, a lot of people, I think, who, who understand, and think the mission is important.
0: And you have a, a lot of young women. You mentioned that you're targeting them, but they are from all sorts of backgrounds, all different backgrounds. And that's racially, ethnically, um, career focused background. Mm-hmm. They're typically in hard security, but uh, it, within hard security, there is a variety of experiences. Uh, how do you want them to impact the conversation about foreign policy and security? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, actually, this, well, to start out with, we the, the, the organization really looks at peace and security. So it expands uh, everything from climate change and infectious disease to the heart security area. So we have people, uh, we have young people and, and mid-career people and older who work on different things. So, for example, we hosted an event in Berkeley three weeks ago that talked about food security and climate change, um, and and, and, you know, and we had an event in Brookings that talked about peacemaking, things like that. So it really does span the gamut, and so um, heart security is just one part of it. Um, and one of the things that I really want um, for the young women is a lot of mentorship. You know, I think a lot of a lot of young women want mentorship um,
0: and particularly as fine in Washington, that's a big issue for a
1: lot of women. But I think that's important everywhere.
0: You brought um, up you brought up mentoring and I was going to ask you about that. Uh, you have this network and you're you're going beyond just having them meet each other. You're actually bringing in people to train them on how to talk on TV or mm-hmm. be and you're giving them media training um, and uh, and you're connecting them with peers who can potentially give them career advice. How important are these kinds of skills that they may not be able to get mm-hmm. elsewhere in uh, in their work in their work environments
1: it's very important particularly um, because I think a lot of women and particularly women of color uh, are very nervous about you know, Putting themselves out there and just need to have more confidence because we're in a culture that tells women that they're not as good and you know you shouldn't try and people and a lot of time women self-select themselves out of things um, just because they've grown up in a culture that tells them that that's what they're supposed to do um, and so I think a lot of them just need encouragement and mm-hmm. a lot of it and a lot of times they obviously have the ability to do a lot it's just reminding uh, young women that they they really do <laughs> have the skills. And so it's training, it's training not just to have the technical ability to do it, but to have the the confidence to do it and not to self-select yourself out and say, I can do this thing or why don't I try to do this thing? So, um, and as I did a small survey of my members, uh, networking and mem- mentorship came up as something that they really wanted. So in order to respond to the, what my members want, um, you know, we do these things like the media trainings and the, the webinars that we do, uh, which is open to anyone who wants to take part in those media training webinars. And these are just efforts to try to not just give them technical skills, but to build up the confidence that they need.
0: Mm-hmm. And beyond mentorship, are you working on sponsorship?
1: Sponsorship is, is an automatic part of it. You know, I think mentorship is just one part of it. But making sure that, you know, you're doing more to help young women that you're actually recommending them for jobs, or if 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 somebody asks them, do you know somebody? Um, not only just bringing them into different environments, but making sure that people know who they are. Um, and so more than just saying you should do this, you know, giving them advice, but actually bringing them along, I think is important.
0: It, why does it seem to be, and correct me if I'm wrong with this perception, but why does it seem to be a bit more difficult for women of color in foreign policy and in national security to be seen and heard? It's culture. It's a it's a it's a structural cultural thing. It's it's
1: a and that's why it's very difficult to try to address. Is because there isn't any one thing. It's it's a it's growing up in a culture, as I said earlier, where um, the dominant culture has uh, said certain. The dominant culture sets certain things as right and wrong, as you should and shouldn't do, and these are things that we grow up with believing and understanding because that's what culture is telling us. So it's not something that we that is easily separated from our perceptions. You have to actually understand where the cultural cues are coming from. And that's something that everyone is a part of. And so part of the problem is the fact that we are in a culture that says certain things about women, that says certain thing about people of color, that says something about if you're not from the dominant and that could be anything. And so um, you're constantly fighting against that culture, not only as a woman of color or as a woman, but it's also the, uh, the dominant culture, which has to understand and recognize what that is. And so in order for things to change, you need both parts to be understanding where the cultural cues are coming from and fighting against that culture and it is a fight against the culture because it's around us and everything we see and everything we do and watching television and what we're told as kids and what people are still told now so it's a constant it's a constant stop where is it coming from okay now i know what i need to do
0: have you found any resistance from Creating this group and shining a spotlight on the young women that you're working to help and working to um, uh, to to put on the on the center stage and have their voices amplified. Mm-hmm. Have, have you gotten resistance? I haven't gotten active resistance.
1: I mean, if if and maybe that's because I know to around myself with, with people who are positive who are going to help me move this forward. Um, but I think if there's resistance, it's more just like I said in in the culture and um, you know recognizing that. You know and something that you know you just grow up naturally understanding as a as a person who's different from the dominant which is you always have to work a little harder um, and you just get used to that so I don't think it's necessarily anything different from what normally exists in terms of trying to do something different from what's no, from what's normal
0: you and know? talk about what these young women bring to the table uh, that uh, helps or that benefits this country's foreign policy and its national security policy? Yeah,
1: I think, first of all, just having uh, any kind of policy that represents the views of the of what America is, is um, important, but it also will make better policy. Because if you leave out certain groups, you're leaving out perspectives, you're leaving out cultural perspectives. Uh, if you're, Our policies, our foreign policies, obviously are foreign, so they're going to affect people from other countries. So it might make sense to have people who have understand the culture of those countries to actually be part of the decision-making process because it might actually mean the the policies will be better and more successful. We have a lot of policies that have not been successful that we've done overseas. And maybe, you know, I'm not saying it would have certainly been different, but it sure would have helped if you had people who are from that culture actually say, well, maybe this may not work. You know, Or maybe you may want to approach it this way. And we don't have those voices. Um, even in 2019, we don't have enough of those voices. So um, you know, having different perspectives, having different viewpoints, having somebody in the room who can say, uh, all of you think the same way. But you know you may want to think a different way. But if there's no one in that room telling them that, they'll just go off thinking that that's the only way and that's the right way because they're all telling each other it's the right way. So if you don't have that voice, if you don't have that perspective, you're always missing potential cues you're you're missing the fact that it could always be a better policy when somebody can say no that might be wrong
0: so what's next you established the group you've got how many members now
1: about over 300 now.
0: 300 members now what's next um, well, like like you said, it's still early, it's still
1: new. So I'm actually now thinking a lot about what do I want to do next. I'm pretty happy with what we've done so far. I want to continue to do the things we're doing, but I do want to... And, meaning the
0: webinars, the media the webinars, training, the media trainings,
1: Uh Things we do, which I call are the passive uh, ways to encourage, which are the the Women of the Month or the Young Ambassador of the Month and looking at the pioneers. and uh, But then there's the podcast, the webinars, the media training, uh, the mentorship programs, um, the programs that we try to do, I, you know, just joint programs we do with other organizations, both think tanks or NGOs. Um, so there's just a, a number of things like that. I love having a website that's full of women of color and allies that, you know, the young girl from, you know, who knows what City and what rural country can turn on the web? Or turn on the website and see all these women who are doing great things and get encouraged by that. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're, I'm thinking now about how do I want to expand and how do I expand smartly? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, looking at those parts of the organization that I need to do more. So I don't, I'm I'm thinking about that now.
0: And finally, I don't want to let you get away without following up on the young ambassadors, because you're not just focusing on the women who are established in their careers. You're looking at younger women who may actually want to choose Mm -hmm. a foreign policy, national security career path. Uh, Talk about that and the development of allies who may not necessarily be other women of color. Yes, I mean, developing, uh, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm working
1: on is a fellowship program for young, for young girls. Um, So I'm in the process of thinking through how we want to do that and, you know, continue to bring in young women um who may not necessarily know what they want to do with with their lives but to to expose them to some of these other some of these issues of peace and security that will be affecting them regardless of what they do you know climate change you know some of these environmental issues not just the hard security stuff is going to be affecting Everyone, particularly younger generation, even more so than now. So, um, just exposing them to some of some of uh, those things are going to be very important. And right now, there are allies. So I haven't had to yet develop them. I think for my first year and a half, it's just seeing the allies who are there. I mean, we hold meetings and events. Where you have a, a lot of young white men who are there, young, yeah, and, and that's very encouraging um, to see that there's an understanding and appreciation for diverse voices. And um, I think that's very important. I even have a page on my website that I call, uh, like this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a catchy phrase, um, down with the cause. Down with the cause. Down with the cause, and those are the allies um, who I highlight. Uh, they're my funders, but also individuals who've been very supportive from the very beginning. Uh, and just highlighting those those folks who have been who understand the importance of diversity, and understand that you know having a diverse uh, perspective helps everyone. It's not just helping any one particular group; it
0: helps everyone, and I
1: appreciate that.
0: Bonnie Jenkins, best of luck. Thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me, and thank <laughs> you for listening. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.